We're continuing a series titled Getting Past Your Past, and I like to review a little bit, and it's not because I don't know how to start the message, it's because we're noticing the trend that almost every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday at Linwood, and we celebrate that, and we're excited about that. That means that you're inviting people to come to church, and they're accepting those invitations, and people are are coming for a variety of different reasons, and they're finding a place here within our family of families. And so I like to catch them up a little bit so they kind of know where we've been and know where we're going. And uh, also, we know from church surveys and statistics that about a third of you are gone about every week. A third of the people that call Linwood Church their home will be gone for one reason or another every week. And about a third of you are here almost every week. And the rest of us fall somewhere in between. And so that makes up what we see today. And so I just want to catch you up. If you miss a message, if you miss a week in the sermon, you can go to our website. You can go to our podcast. You can listen and stay in tune because You've noticed, if you've been here all four weeks now of this series, that we've been focusing on this kind of this big idea that things happen to us so that God can work in us, so that God can work through us. And we've been talking about that in order, so to speak. The first week of this series was titled The Stewardship of Suffering, and we talked about this idea that things happen to us, and if we will allow our our pain to be transformed by God, it will go from pain to power, power to do his will, power to overcome and get past our past. And then in week two, we talked about some of the ways that God begins to work in us. And one of the ways that he begins to work in us is if we will take stock of what happened, step back from it, step back from the emotion that surrounds it, and say, what was my part in that? We talked about the circle of blame, and we want to play the blame game just like Adam and Eve, and we want to blame the whole thing on the other person. But if we'll look for the pearls of wisdom that that experience wants to teach us, and we will own our part, then our big idea that week, or our bottom line that week, was you move past, or you take you, take, you make peace with the past by owning your peace of the past. And then last week we talked about what do we do with their part. And we talked about giving forgiveness and how unforgiveness is a prison cell that we only can unlock from the inside. Nobody can bust you out. You've got to open the door and walk out of unforgiveness. And we find that when we do, it's not just a gift that we give to the person that we forgive. It's a gift that we give to ourselves. So this week, we're talking about ways in which God then begins to work through us. Once we've allowed him to transform our perspective on our pain, once we have owned our part and we have forgiven their part, now how does God begin to work through us after he has worked in us? And that's what we're going to be focusing on today in a message titled Sewing Lessons. Now, my wife Heather loves to sew, and she's sewn amazing things and big quilts and all sorts of different things. We're not talking about that kind of sewing, though. Okay, we're talking about S-O-W-I-N-G, where we sow seed, or we sow things into our lives that we want to later harvest. And we're going to be looking at the same passage of Scripture to begin each of the next two messages as we look at this idea of sowing lessons. Because I am a big advocate for the truth that changed beliefs lead to changed behaviors. And one of the ways you can tell if you really believe something new or believe something different is that your behaviors will come in line with that belief. If there's no change in behavior, then there probably hasn't been any change in your core belief. And so when we talk about getting past our past and we talk about recognizing maybe some patterns in our lives, in our our history as we look back over and we find ourselves in the same situations, the same broken relationships, the same financial situations or conditions, that maybe there's something we need to change in the way that we approach our lives. And there's one 
one behavior that I would love to see take root here at Linwood and just flourish all over the church, and that's the behavior of prayer. That's the behavior of prayer. And in fact, next week we have our group prayer where people will meet together in the chapel and they will share prayer requests and they will pray together. Pray, here's somebody praying for your prayer requests. Brings you closer to that person and, and encourages you in a way that just praying on your own might not. So I want to encourage you, if you're not involved in a link group or, or if you can possibly get here at 930 and join, I would love to see the prayer ministry grow so much at Linwood that they have to hold the meetings in the gym. I can't imagine what God could do through a church that was so connected and united in prayer that the only room in this church that was big enough to hold it was the gym. I would love to see that. And God would bring people to us and entrust people to us if we were that connected to him through prayer. So I hope to see you uh, next Sunday at 930 as we kind of uh, come together and pray together. But as we think about sowing lessons and we think about uh, the types of seed that we sow, I thought we might have a little bit of fun with this. I put a quiz or a, a poll, I should say, out on Facebook. And if you're not on Facebook, God bless you, don't start, okay? If you've made it this long, don't, don't go get a Facebook account because Pastor Mark might put a fruit poll on there, okay? But if you are on Facebook, then I would challenge you to be intentional about redeeming Facebook because there's plenty of nonsense on there, um, but there are plenty of ways that we can spread God's word, spread uh, what God is doing in and through our lives on Facebook and redeem Facebook. And so uh, I had a little fun with that and asked you to identify your favorite fruit. We had 25 people participate in the poll, and I was thrilled beyond measure that my favorite fruit was also the favorite fruit. And, and I said, there's just nothing like a perfect peach. There's nothing that quite compares for me to a perfect peach. Now, I could have answered this question differently on different days. I love fruit. Um, I've had those, those gold foil wrapped pears at Christmas time that, I mean, it's pretty hard to beat one of those too. And, and, and I really like a great orange if it's really cold on a hot day. There's just I mean, I love fruit, but we're not here to talk about how much I love fruit. We're here because it's interesting that um, when we talk about fruit or we talk about uh, produce or what are we producing, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about the outcome of certain behavior, certain things. When we think about fruit in the spiritual sense, it represents the outcome of God's work in our lives. Jesus said in John 15 that he's the vine and we're the branches, and if we stay connected to him, we'll bear much fruit. In fact, he says there's a progression that, that we'll bear fruit, we'll bear much fruit, and we'll bear fruit that remains. And one of the things that's neat about fruit is that it reproduces itself, because the actual definition of fruit is the sweet and fleshy product of a tree or other plant that contains seed and can be eaten as food. That's the definition of fruit. And so by that definition, some of you might be aware that tomato is considered a fruit, right? Tomato is a fruit because it's the sweet, fleshy part of a plant or tree that contains seeds on the inside and may be eaten as food. Now, I have heard it said that, that knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting a tomato in a fruit salad, Right? Because nobody wants a bunch of tomatoes in their fruit salad. You want that in a vegetable salad. And that kind of gets us to uh, what I learned this week. I didn't know this. There's two different classifications of fruit. There's the botanical classification, which is what I read you. And then there's the culinary classification. Now, the culinary classification has to do with more what we would consider a traditional fruit. Whereas botanical is that root definition. And it's interesting when we think about fruit-bearing and fruit-bearing analogies in Scripture. We see them mostly in the New Testament. 
And the reason for this is that the Old Testament, the culture that God was speaking to and seeking to reveal himself to was a predominantly ranching culture as we would um, imagine it today, where, where it was more the flocks and, the, and, and God is referred to over and over in the Old Testament as a shepherd. In fact, the most familiar passage of scripture in all of the Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd. And so we see in the Old Testament, there wasn't a lot of cultivation of the land going on. There wasn't a lot of irrigation. There wasn't a lot of planting and sowing and those types of things. It was predominantly pasturing animals. But something changed. And by the time Jesus is walking around 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine, it was a predominantly agrarian society where they were cultivating land and they were planting olive groves and they were planting vineyards and they were raising wheat and they were doing things and they had mastered some of the technology that goes behind that type of farming. So we find Jesus speaking more to that society and to the people that were engaged predominantly in these agricultural uh, systems. And so he uses a lot of analogies that have to do with sowing and reaping and fruit bearing and those types of things. Now today, it's interesting, I was thinking about this, I was like, well today how many of you are farmers? Not a whole lot. There might be a few gardeners, but farmers are the vast minority of our, of our, of our population. They are able to produce a lot more per farm than they ever have before, but they don't, they don't necessarily farm as much. And, uh, and today, post industrial revolution, it's more technology. And so I have to imagine that if Jesus set up his ministry along the I-29 corridor between um, maybe Omaha and Sioux Falls, he probably wouldn't be talking about farming and he probably wouldn't be talking about ranching. He'd probably have a slide projector and an iPad because technology is the way that we intersect culture today. But he chose what worked at the time. And it's interesting as we look at this in the, in the Old Testament, there's a transition to fruit bearing and, and sowing and reaping that we see over and over and over in the New Testament. We can learn a lot from it. So we're going to look at that today. And all just so we're on the same page, since you're not a lot of farmers here, if you plant tomato seeds, what type of fruit can you expect to reap from planting tomato seeds? Anybody? Tomatoes. Good job. No tough questions before lunch, right? If you plant tomato seeds, you're going to get tomato plants, right? If you want to harvest oranges, what kind of seeds should you plant? Orange seeds. Exactly. It's not a trick question. And yet we can see, and and maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just everybody you know. We can see where people sow certain seeds over and over and over in their lives, expecting to harvest different fruit. Anybody catching with, tracking with me here? You see people sow all kinds of, of envy and jealousy and greed and selfishness and pride into their relationships and expect to reap healthy relationships. Or maybe we sow uh, a lack of self-control and a lot of debt and, and poor uh, financial management into our financial lives and expect to reap a long and healthy and prosperous retirement. It doesn't work, does it? And so our bottom line today, we'll get to it early, is that if you want to change your crop, you have to change your seed. If you want to change what you're harvesting, you have to change your seed. So when we think about this in the context of getting past our past, if you want to get past your past and you see these relational habits or these financial habits or these, these situations that you keep finding yourself in, and it's very likely that you need to change the seed that you're sowing in your life. 
And so we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 today. And uh, we'll start with these verses next week and continue through the end of the passage there. Galatians is a letter that Paul writes to churches that he planted in a province called Galatia. And so that's why we call it Galatians. And it's one of my favorite letters. It, I think it zeroes in in a way that nothing else in the New Testament does on the difference between a relationship with Jesus Christ and a religion that says, do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder. Because there were a lot of people that were very invested in the religious system of do more and try harder. And they were staunchly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul and his friends were proclaiming throughout the new world. And so he wrote this letter to really zero in on that difference. And it's a powerful, powerful letter when you take it in, in, in whole. Now, this passage that we're reading comes at the very end of that letter. So it's almost like his closing remarks. And he says this. He says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So there's three things that I want you to see today, maybe three important points that I want you to see today from these two verses, and we'll kind of walk through them one verse at a time. The first is, do not be deceived. There's an exhortation here that Paul is making, and he's encouraging us, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by others, you know. Bad company corrupts good character, and you can read through Proverbs, and you'll find all kinds of exhortations to not be deceived, to not be led astray, to not follow others into um, immoral behavior. Don't be deceived. And one of the best ways that you can keep yourself from being deceived is to know God's word and to do God's word and to practice God's word and to seek a heart of wisdom and to be, seek to be led by the spirit of God. And that keeps you from being deceived by those that would seek to manipulate you or take advantage of you. The other area that we need to be aware of when it comes to deceit is don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. In fact, I think the worst type of deception is the deception that we practice on ourselves. And every single one of you has blind spots, and you can't see them. That's why they're called blind spots. I have blind spots, and I can't see my blind spots on my own no matter how hard I look for them. In fact, Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote that the heart is deceitful above all. Who can trust it? And yet we live in a culture that says, follow your heart. Follow your heart. No. I will tell you right now, don't follow your heart. Because I have seen people follow their hearts right into adultery and divorce. I've seen people follow their heart right into bankruptcy. I've seen people follow their heart right out of a very good career to follow some hobby. You don't follow your heart. You lead your heart, or better yet, you surrender your heart to God and allow God to lead your heart through his spirit, which is within you, through his word, through the fellowship of believers, that when we do life in community, there are people that you can surround yourself with who will help you see your blind spots. And I'm thankful for the people that help me see my blind spots. I'm married to one of them, and sometimes she points out a blind spot in my life, in my character, that I wasn't aware was there. And I need that. And I have a counselor that she helps me see some blind spots. And I've had friends everywhere that we've lived and ministered that have helped me see my blind spots. But I have to be vulnerable and open with them and allow them to speak truth into my life. And they have to have the courage to do it. So it takes two. And so don't be deceived. And the reason you don't want to be deceived is because God can't be mocked. And in in religion, you can fool everybody but God. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here, because there were a group of people called the Pharisees that you hear about a lot if you read through the Gospels and you read about Jesus' ministry, and they had fooled everybody but God. And yet Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God in person, 
calls them whitewashed tombs. Say, you look great from the outside. You fooled everybody but God, but God is not going to be mocked. You cannot pull a fast one on him. You have to have the relationship. You have to be in relationship with God. And so the second thing we want to see is that, that sowing and reaping is what I call a true truth. It's a true truth. It's a truth that's true whether you're a Christian or not. It's not a Christian thing. It's, not a, a, it's a thing thing. It's, it's true. Like we talked about at the beginning, if you want tomato plants, you're going to plant tomato seeds. And if you plant orange seeds, you're going to get orange trees. There's, there's, this, is, this is not something that's, in, it, that's true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. It's a principle that God established clear back in Job chapter 4. is the first reference to sowing and reaping. And we have reason to believe from the age of the manuscripts that Job is the first book that was written down in writing. That The oldest manuscripts of scripture that we have are from the book of Job. And so from the very beginning, this idea of sowing and reaping has been true. And it's in Psalms, it's in Proverbs, it's in the major and minor prophets. Jesus talks about it in the Gospels. Paul writes about it several times in his letters. And James references it in the book of James. So it's throughout Scripture. It is true that what you sow, you will reap. It applies to everyone, whether you believe or not. And the third thing, and this is the most important thing that I want you to see, is Paul is not talking about tomatoes. He's talking about something much more important than plant life or horticulture. Paul makes it clear in verse 8 what he is talking about when he says that a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So the stakes are incredibly high. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about eternal death. We're talking about destruction or life in all of its fullness. And so he's building upon an argument that he started back in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, where he says that the flesh is contrary to the spirit. So it's not like they're just a little bit off of each other. It's not like they're running parallel in the same direction or they're just a few degrees off. He's saying that they're so contrary to each other, the flesh or the sinful nature in us is so contrary to the Spirit of God that they're 180 degrees apart. And that's why repentance, the word that we translate as repentance, is actually a word picture that talks about a 180 degree turn. So if you're going in this direction, to repent is not to go in this direction or even perpendicular. It's to turn 180 degrees and move in a different direction. And we turn our backs on our sinful nature and we pursue God and his spirit and everything that he has for us. And the flesh is that which is apart from faith, that which is apart from the influence of God's Spirit on our lives. And that's why Paul says earlier in this letter that I was crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's one of the first verses of Scripture that I memorized when I became a Christian. It's Galatians 2.20. And I would, I would say, I am Mark in whom Christ dwells. I would write that out. That Jesus is living within me, so I don't sow and I don't act and I don't think about ways to indulge my sinful nature anymore. If I'm following Christ, I'm moving in a different direction. I'm pursuing the Spirit. I'm walking by the Spirit. And here's the powerful thing about walking with the Spirit. It doesn't only relate to our direction that we're going. It also relates to the empowerment of God coming alongside us to do the will of God in the ways of God to walk with the Spirit. And it's opposite of walking with the flesh. Does that make sense? 
Are we tracking here? So when we start to apply this to sowing and reaping, then we want to reap the, the things that the Spirit will be pleased with, and we have to sow into those. I posted uh, a few, maybe a week or two ago, um, a, a little picture that it was, just a, it was just a quote that somebody had said, and said, no wonder the day doesn't, doesn't bring God any glory when the morning didn't start with him. That, that if we begin each day in God's word, that orients us both directionally and empowering-wise into the things of God, into the direction that God wants us to go. So we sow scripture into our lives at the beginning of each day. We sow prayer into our lives throughout each day. We find ways to connect with God and to stay in tune with God and to stay, um, and to stay in relationship with God throughout each day. Then that keeps us moving in the direction of the Spirit. So we're sowing to the Spirit and we're reaping from the Spirit. And the applications of this are innumerable. There's so many ways that this idea of sowing and reaping applies to our lives. The, the big ones would probably be our relationships. Our relationships. That when we sow anger and jealousy and greed and discord and distrust and pride and selfishness into our relationships, we will reap broken relationships as a result. And whether those are our friendships or family relationships, our marriage, our parenting, what we put into our relationships is what we get out of our relationships. What we sow into our relationships is what we will get out of our relationships. And if we sow love and honor and respect and faithfulness into our relationships, then we'll reap those from our relationships. I'm excited about the next series that we're going to start. We've got one more week of getting past your past next week, and we'll continue this idea of sewing lessons. Then we're going to start a brand new series for about six weeks called A Family of Families. You should have had one of these on your seat on the way in, and uh, these are really important. These are postcards, but if you flip them around, you'll notice that we did not put any space on there to write an address. Because we are not going to mail any of these. We're not going to do some blanket mailer. You're the delivery system for the postcards for a family of families. And there's extras around you. We're probably only filling up half the seats this morning, maybe a little over that. So you can take a couple of these with you. And the idea is that you go up to another living human being and you hand them the postcard. And you say, I would like to invite you to my church this next weekend. On May 20th, we're starting a new sermon series about how we are a family of families. And we want your family to become a part of our family of families. And we ordered a 1,000 of these. And don't worry, they were inexpensive, okay? So we didn't just, you know, bankrupt the church on these. But for about 60 bucks, you can get a 1,000 postcards. And surveys tell us that one in four to one in five people, if they're personally invited to church by somebody they know will come to church. You believe that? That means that if you guys will put a thousand of these in the hands of a thousand different people out in Sioux Falls, somewhere between 200 and 250 people will come to Linwood Church and hear what it means to be part of a family of families. And they might just decide that they want to be a part of a family of families. So we're asking for your help there. We're asking you to take one, take two, take five. If you're real gregarious and energetic and you just love talking to people and you love inviting people to church, there's whole stacks of these out at the Connection kiosk. You can stop by there, pick up some extras. And don't just leave them around, okay? Don't do littering evangelism, all right? Don't, and whatever you do, don't leave these instead of a tip at lunch today, okay? This, this might go really well with a $20 tip, And a conversation that says, thank you for serving us. I'd like to do you a favor. Here's a nice, generous tip, and I'd like to invite you to church. But please don't ever, ever leave propaganda or a track or something like that in place of a tip. All right. 
So, there's all kinds of ways that we can apply this to our lives. We can apply this in our finances. We can apply this in our health. That what you sow into your health, you will reap in your health later on. And so, every area of life, sowing and reaping, applies. And there are a couple of key questions that I'd like to close with and I'd like you to think about as we move from what it said to what it meant. Now we're talking about how does this apply to your life today? How are you going to be different on Monday because you came to church on Sunday? And the first question is, is there anything you are currently sowing in your life that you don't want to reap later on? Is there anything that you're currently sowing into your life into your relationships, into your finances, into your career, into your health that you don't want to reap later on. And you know, I don't want to reap what I'm sowing in this relationship. I don't want to reap what I'm sowing financially here. If you want to change your crop, you've got to change your seed. The second question is similar, but it takes a different angle on it. It says, is there anything that you want to reap someday that you need to start sowing now? Is there anything that you want to reap in a relationship that you need to start sowing now? We, we, I'm into organizational leadership, so I do a lot with mission and vision and values, and, and I'm excited to go through that process with the leadership here at the church. And uh, I like it so much that we even crafted a family mission statement and vision statement and core values. And we talk about them with our kids because we're sowing into their lives that things like honesty and integrity and faith in Christ and generosity and wisdom and courage are things that we value as a family and we want to harvest them in their lives later on. And we decided that the win for our family, Heather and I decided the win for our family was that our kids would want to come and be around us and around each other when they didn't have to anymore. That's the win. That's the vision for our family. And we talk about these things because they matter. So we want to be sowing intentionally into our lives things that we want to be reaping later on. And the same may be true for you. Maybe it's financial. Maybe you want to retire at 67 or 65 or 62 or 60 or 50 or whenever it is for you. And if you want to reap a certain, a certain lifestyle in retirement, you have to start sowing into that lifestyle right now. Sowing and reaping is a powerful principle that if we will understand and if we will allow God to change the way that we think and change the things that we sow into our lives and the lives of others, then we will see the fruit of those things born in our lives and in the lives of others. And the final spiritual practice maybe that I would suggest um, if you really want to get past your past, if you really want to change what you're sowing and what you're reaping, is one that I've talked about a couple of times, and it has to do with the four most important books that I've read in the last year, and they're all up here on stage with me. And the first one is God's Word, and I read it every single day, and I hope that you're doing the same. If, if you're not, start somewhere. Start in Proverbs. Read a chapter of Proverbs every day, and when you get done, change translations and read it again and get familiar with it. And then start in one of the Gospels and read some of the stories of Jesus. Just start somewhere. You don't have to understand everything to get value and benefit from reading God's Word. That's the first one. The other three, um, I happen to be the author of these books. These are journals that I have written in. And I don't know if you're like me. I heard about journaling for 35 years, and I had half a dozen journals with three pages filled in them. And I never really took root with journaling. In fact, this chunk right here represents eight years worth of journaling in this journal because I got one and I stuck with it for eight years and then this section represents four months when I finally sat down with God every day 
and allowed my thoughts to slow down enough that I could write them out on paper. And I started to find that my thoughts disentangled themselves as they passed from my pen to my paper. And I started to see insights that I never would have seen before and I never would have seen otherwise. And then something really powerful happened by accident. About two weeks in here, I thought, you know, I really should go back and read over that journal and see what I've been writing about. I've been spending this time. So I took about 15 minutes and I read back over the last two weeks. And it was amazing. It was amazing to see how prayers had been answered. It was amazing to see how shifts in my thinking and in my actions and in, in my words had, had started to take root. And so it reinforced it. And I decided, well, you know what? Every Saturday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read back over the last week. And once a month I set aside about an hour and I go over the, the last month and I bullet point the insights from that month. And then in January, I was able to get away for a silent retreat, and I read over the past nine months of my journal, and I saw things so clearly and so powerfully, and it was such, it resonated with me so much. So if you're having trouble getting past your past and you haven't tried journaling, please try journaling. Allow yourself to slow down enough, because you can think a thousand words a minute, but you can only write about a hundred and if you'll slow down enough to allow God to work in that, you will see things with a clarity that you can't get otherwise. And especially if you start with his word, and then you write about what God's word is saying to you and how it's intersecting with your life, now you've really got some power. And so I would suggest if you want a, a, an easy way to start journaling, do what I call a, a SOAP journal. It's an acronym, S-O-A-P, Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. Read a chapter of the Bible. Pick out a verse that really speaks to you. Just one verse, maybe two verses. Write it down. Write it down slowly. Think about each word as you write it down. Make an observation or two. Here's what this caught my eye. Here's, here's, here's what I never realized about this. Or this reminds me of this scripture. Or whatever it is, two or three sentences is enough. Then write an application. Here's how I think that God's word might apply to my life today in this relationship that's been challenging or in this work situation or, or whatever it may be. And then write out a short prayer. You can do this in five minutes. You can do it in 15 minutes. You can take an hour and do the soap journal, scripture, observation, application, prayer. And I guarantee you God will show you things from his word and how they intersect with your life in a powerful, powerful way. So whatever it takes to get you journaling uh, do it. Do it. Do it for a while. Read back over it. Watch how God works in and through those journals. And watch how he shows you seed that you're currently sowing that you don't want to harvest. Or seed that you need to start sowing because of what you want to harvest someday. Because if you want to change your crop, you have to change your seed. He will show you areas where you have bad seed that you're going to exchange for good seed. And he might even show you some good seed that you can exchange for better seed or best seed. Because good is actually the enemy of great. And that we can settle for good long enough that we miss out on the great. And if you're spending time every day in God's word and you're spending time thinking about it and reflecting upon it and allowing it to get inside you, he will change you and he will bear fruit in you and through you. Would you bow with me as we pray? And as we continue to worship God this morning, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the principles that it contains and the truth that they contain and the way that you call us into an ever deeper relationship with you so that you can work in us 
and you can work through us. Lord, I pray that as we continue this journey of getting past our past, that you, through your spirit and through our reflection and through your word, you will reveal to us areas where we need to change our seed or areas where we need to start sowing certain seeds so that we can reap the things that will bring you glory, that will be pleasing to your spirit at work within us. Be with us now as we respond in faith to your word. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we sing another song or two here, the altars are open and you can make an altar where you're seated or you can come forward. You can spend some time reflecting with God or you can stand in worship. There's freedom in these moments. But my hope and my prayer is that you will respond in faith to God and to his word and what he wants to do in your life.